Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling. And I'm Doug Stewart. And today we're joined by Shane Claiborne. Shane is an internationally recognized Christian author, speaker, and activist who has written several books, his latest of which is Executing Grace, which is an argument for why Christians should oppose the death penalty. Uh, To sort of give a bit of a background on this issue for for our audience, libertarians, uh, both Christian and non-Christian, have been divided on it throughout the years. So, for example, Murray Rothbard argued that capital punishment could be acceptable in a libertarian way of thinking uh, if it was used as as a method of enforcing some kind of private law contract and in the sense that the killer has forfeited up his his right to life. Now, on the other hand, there's been many libertarians, including Ron Paul, who have opposed capital punishment, saying that it empowers the state and it doesn't bring about restitution and restorative justice and therefore would be illegitimate. Now, our Christian theology as libertarian Christians really informs this uh, to a, a sharper degree. And Shane joins us today. He he doesn't identify as a libertarian, but I think there's a lot of overlap between libertarian thought and his thought. And he's certainly a, a magnificent uh, brother in the Lord, and I've really enjoyed learning from his work. So, Shane, thank you for being here with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's it's wonderful to uh, have a conversation with you guys and your audience. And uh, like I said, uh, I'm I'm friendly to libertarianism, and I, I think we do have a lot of uh, things in in common. So it's it's great to talk about this. And I, you know, I think this death penalty conversation is one that um, we need a lot of grace, you know, as we talk about it, because. Folks, uh, a lot of folks haven't thought a whole lot about it, and the more we think about it, I think the more troubling uh, it becomes. Uh, so, for a lot of my life, I was I was in favor of the death penalty, um, and and very passionate about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think a, a lot of us can relate to that. I mean, especially those who who came out of a, a conservative background. I mean, it, it if you're operating sort of just in the in the typical world's way of thinking about it, I mean, it it. It makes sense. I mean, if you're not if you're not looking at Jesus, it makes sense. Um, and I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to pigeonhole our audience here because I'm sure we have some listeners who who, who disagree with this assessment. Uh, but we'll dive into that. So, tell tell us a little bit about how you came to um, to get to your current views on this subject. Why do, why should Christians oppose the death penalty? Specifically, we'll we'll dive into the Bible and thinking about how Christ applies to this situation. So if you can just kind of start off with with how you came to these conclusions. Well, sure. And and I'll have to say, you know, uh, the that the, it's the 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 stories, names and faces uh that really shifted my heart on this. Um uh as I did I wrote the book Executing Grace, I I interviewed a lot of folks that have now become friends and a lot of their stories I had heard of from a distance, but as I leaned into that I've gotten to know a whole lot of murder victims' family members, uh, so folks that have lost their kids, their moms and dads, their spouses uh, to violent crime, but they've just come to a conclusion that violence is the problem, not the solution, and and really that the death penalty um, extends trauma. It creates a whole new set of victims, uh, exacerbates kind of the wounds of of the that are already there, and and there's better ways to deal with violence than, you know, with more violence. Um, So, and then I interviewed um, executioners. Um, One in particular, uh, Ron McAndrew, who was, uh, you know, we don't, we don't always think about the people who are left with the dirty work of actually um, taking someone's life through execution. And uh, Ron was one of those, he was a prison warden in Florida that oversaw electric chair executions. and he was haunted by it, um, and, but he still believed in the death penalty. So he, he pioneered uh, lethal injection in the state of Florida as a more sanitized way of killing, uh, but was still 
no less haunted. And when I talked to him, he's still a tough on crime kind of guy. You can tell he's been a prison warden. Um, you know, he says, you do the crime, you should do the time. But then he starts talking about the death penalty. He says, this is something altogether dif- different. I mean, there's something deeply um, uh, traumatic about what we're doing. And he knows that firsthand, you know, and, and he, um, he, he ended up just saying there's, there's no good way to kill someone. It does something to us. Um, and I think he was speaking as one who has been responsible for that. But I think it also do, does something to us as a society when we continue um, to try to kill to show that killing is wrong. I think, I think we legitimate the very kind of violence for, that d- Jesus in particular uh, came to heal the world of and, and shows us how to interact with evil without becoming it. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think it's my my the, the folks uh, that have been wrongfully convicted as well, exonerees. Um, we now have 156, I think it is. There's new ones almost uh, every month. Um, but uh, these are 156 people that have been able to prove their innocence um, and are released from death row after being wrongfully convicted. Um, for every nine executions, we've had one exoneration. So, I mean, that that's unbelievable if you think about that. You know, if for every 10 planes that took off, if one of them crashed, you know, we'd be like, whoa, we got a problem with the system here. You know, we need to ground this thing. Um, so I, I think that that's why, you know, there's, there's so many folks that are um, maybe for the death penalty in principle, but when they really look at it, um, in practice, uh, they, 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 you know, we, we think that we're killing the worst of the worst, but often we're killing the poorest of the poor um, and overwhelmingly, disproportionately people of color. Um, so, you know, when, when we think of what determines who lives and dies, it's very arbitrary things um, like geography. You know, the zip code that you commit a crime can end up determining your fate. Um, and, and often the resources of the defendant, the race of the victim, when the victim is white and the defendant is uh, African-American or a person of color, that often ends up being um, much more likely to end up in an execution. So, you know, there's all of that. But I, I think uh, those were all things that uh, have led to the sort of changing of my heart on it. Um, and in particular, my faith. You know, I went back and looked at the death penalty in Scripture and, and that's one of the things you go, well, how do we still have it? And the answer is like Christians have really been the backbone of support for the death penalty in America. And I, I was one of those. And, and so I went back and tried to look at my own theology um, and, and, and to look at Jesus and say, how does Jesus uh, inform and shape how I think about capital punishment? And that, that, that really uh, led to a radical shift. Your book has sort of several ways of tackling this topic. Uh, one of them is practical with, you know, with the logistics of things like capital punishment versus uh, life in prison, other things like stories that sort of, you know, tug at your heart and make you realize that these aren't just statistics. These are these aren't just people in zip codes. These are people who have family. Uh, some of them are actually wrongfully uh, executed. You also talk about the theological angle of what does it mean to you know read the scripture through the lens of Christ. So your book kind of gets at several different angles, which really you know is really helpful because not everybody's going to value the stories as much as they would the theology, or uh, some people are going to be convinced because of the stories and realize, oh my goodness, I didn't know this about something like the death penalty. Do you feel like? Many Christians, they just, it's sort of the default, you know, sort of the status quo bias that this is kind of what, you know, the Bible says it, it's it's not it's not forbidden explicitly later in the scriptures or anything like that. Do you think it's because it's just sort of a status quo, or is it just they're uninformed about what the process looks like? I think that was the biggest surprise element for me, was that while, while reading it, I was like, wow, I did not know this about how it works. Well, I think thanks for for the question, and I, you know, I, I think that some people really haven't thought a whole lot about it. You know, um, uh, the death penalty, and part of why I think it's so important to think about is is because it it um, kind of opens all kinds of other really important questions about how we think of redemption and grace and uh, why Jesus died. Um, because uh, there's a lot of folks that say, you know, how can God be against the death penalty? God used it to save the world. You know, God 
killed his own son. And, and you're like, wow, we, we got to, you know, get underneath some of this. So I, you know, as you take away those layers, you see, um, how, how it, our, our contemporary death penalty has been the descendant of, uh, lynching, um, and racism, you know, so there's all those different things that we can see in it as, as you unravel it. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of myth, myths or misinformation out there too. People think, you know, well, it's a it's a deterrent of crime, but but that's in fact not true. Like uh, the places that still have the death penalty have some of the highest rates of violent crime, and you know, over and over studies show that there's no um, legitimacy to the deterrency. Uh, you know, the the argument that it's a deterrent. Uh, police chiefs around the country have said when when they were asked what are some of the best things that deter crime, it was like at the very bottom of the list. The death penalty. There's all kinds of other things that are are much better. Um, same with victims' families, you know, is it the best way to serve victims? And that's why a lot of conservatives have gotten involved, because it costs more to keep the death penalty um, than alternatives, even even things like life in prison. And so, you know, conservatives concerned about the death penalty are um, leading uh, the movement to abolish the death penalty in a lot of places. Um, yeah, there's there's all of those things. So I, I, I think that that's why I try to reach out to people's heads and to their hearts, you know, because some folks uh, are, are um, really moved by stories and others are, are, you know, they want the facts and the information. And I, I think that that's the, the interesting thing with this is, is as you sort of look at it, there's so many reasons to be against the death penalty. And we now see, you know, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, anarchists, you know, <laughs> all going, it's time to be done with this. And, and for, you know, the first time in, in over a generation, more people are against the death penalty than are for it when um, they're presented with alternatives. And um, so I, I, I'm, you know, optimistic. I think the death penalty is on its way out. Uh, the question is, where will Christians be, uh, you know, as history is made? And because uh, it doesn't take much courage to say slavery is wrong a generation after we've ended it. You know, I, I think it, it take, took took courage to say slavery uh, was wrong when it was still legal. And, and I think that we will, in fact, look back at the death penalty a lot like we look back at slavery with, you know, shame and horror going, how did we think that was okay? Um, and, and when you when you kind of zoom out to the rest of the world, most of the world has abolished the death penalty. And the company that we keep when it comes to executing folks is uh, China is the number one executing, uh, executing country in the world. And then uh, from there, it's, you know, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the U.S. is usually number five or number six on that list. So we're one of the top executing countries in the world. That's not great company to keep when it comes to, uh, you know, human rights <laughs> and things like that. So, yeah. I'm really glad that you're optimistic. One of the there was a s small portion of your book that talked about the on the one hand, we have the death penalty, and that's something to lament if you're on that side, uh, which I am, by the way. Um, on the other hand, you actually drill down a little bit with the numbers, and you kind of point out, you know, we're really talking about a few select counties and a few select states. So the work, I mean, we're, we're near the end of our work, if you will. I guess maybe that's why you're optimistic. Yeah, I mean, you, you think we have the we, – we say things like we have the death penalty in America, but the fact is um, – we have the death penalty in Texas um, and Georgia and Florida and a few places that have uh, in the last uh, few decades have, have really been regularly executing people. Um, um, in last year, um, Texas and Georgia alone uh, made up on like 80 percent of the executions. Um, Texas is always half the executions. So and then when you when you kind of look at the counties, as you said, like it's two percent, two percent of our thirty over thirty one hundred um, counties in the U.S. are now uh, responsible for a majority of the death sentences. That's unbelievable. So it's like fifteen counties or so out of all of our over three thousand counties that are regularly pursuing uh, death sentences or even have any death sentences at all. So the truth is, you know, it's Harris County. Like we have several counties where the death penalty is still very alive, but a majority of the, the United States has done away with executing people either um, on the books and in by law or just um, um, in practice. Like Pennsylvania, we still have the death penalty 
but we haven't executed someone in, in, in over a decade. Uh, and our, our governor has a moratorium. And you may have seen this just yesterday, um, uh, a district attorney was elected uh, in the primary, but he'll, he'll win the election. Um, and he ran on a, uh, this is a district attorney. So our, you know, uh, uh, Philadelphia is one on a um, anti-death penalty platform. It was one of the things that he said, I'm, uh, I will not, uh, I'll do everything I can to, to do away with the death penalty. So that's, that's pretty incredible. On the practical aspect of things, I think a lot of people don't know why it's more expensive to kill somebody for the state to kill somebody than it is for them to just hang out in prison for the rest of their lives, which could be a very long time depending on when they commit the crime. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you look at, um, all of the resources that are going into this failed system. Uh, I mean, it's hemorrhaging. And so there's just, it's exhausting so much energy. I mean, you look at Arkansas where they just had this, you know, assembly line of executions, eight executions in 10 days um, because their their drugs were expiring. But I mean, they're working around the clock. I mean, the drugs themselves uh, often cost uh, uh, massive amounts of money. Um, you're looking at it, it, it's it, it's often 30 years, 20 years, 30 years before an execution ever happens, if it even does, you know. Um, and so what that does to a victim's family as well is it puts them on, you know, on this trajectory where they're going to they're going to have to wait 10 or 20 years um, and see all of this money spent on this broken process. And and then like it's it's less than 1% of murders ever end in an execution. So, you know, you have country uh, states like uh, California that has the biggest death row in the, in, in the country. Um, uh, and yet when you look at that, they, they're, they're not executing folks um, and they're, they're wasting so much money uh, to maintain that broken system. Um and and uh, and so so some folks would say, well, speed it up, and all that that would do is ensure that you're going to execute more innocent people because it's also taking over ten years for the average exoneree, the average innocent person, to um, prove that they were innocent. So, uh, and, and and that's why the victims have been such an important voice in this. Is they're going, there are so many things that could be done to support victims' families uh, after. A violent crime, um, and and uh, uh, they they want to see those resources used in ways that actually concretely support a family. Like if you know the breadwinner for the family is killed, let's support that family with resources. And what's also true is that there, that those resources are often overseen by the prosecutor's office. So when the victim's family works with the prosecution. They're given an, a microphone and amplified, and they're given all kinds of incentives and resources. When the, the victim's family, for whatever reason, is not against the death penalty or is against the death penalty, they don't want to see an execution, then they're um, often silenced uh, and uh, resources are not extended to them. And that's very troubling for a lot of victims that uh, don't fit the narrative of a victim that wants the death penalty. Um, and uh, there's even cases like Suzanne. Bossler that I tell in my book where she was actually threatened with obstruction of justice uh, after surviving a crime that she was almost killed in and her dad was killed and he was a pastor and she didn't want the death penalty uh, and she was you know threatened with a fine and uh, uh, even jail time in court when she mentioned that she didn't want uh, to, to have an execution for the person that did it. Now Shane along those lines I, I actually heard um, someone say recently that when victims' families come out and say things like, you know, we forgive the killer, um, that, that that is actually like a type of unjust forgiveness because if the person isn't a Christian, then God hasn't forgiven them because they haven't been washed by the blood of the Lamb. But I, I think that's kind of a, a, a wrong way of thinking about how, how the victims interpret when they say, we forgive the killer. I mean, I would think that means like we give up whatever supposed claim that we have to hate this person. It, it's not making a pronouncement on the theology of are their sins forgiven by 
the blood of Christ, because if they're not if they're not in Christ, then I mean the answer would be no. But they're saying that as far as we're concerned, we're not going to hate this person. We're not going to exact vengeance on this person. We're going to hope for uh, repentance for this person. In, in your conversations with victims' families, is that is that an accurate assessment? Well, th- this is what I've heard so many times, and, and I want to be very clear that no one in my family has been murdered. And so and that's one of the things that I always say when I talk about the death penalty is I, I've voluntarily chosen to talk about this. And there's a lot of people that this chose them. And, you know, they joined a club that no one wanted to join um, by being a murder victim's family member. So there's so many ways um, that folks respond to trauma. And I don't want to... Uh, uh, you know, I, I think I, I can only imagine what that feels like. But what I, 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 as I've met folks, one one person in particular, her dad was convicted of killing her mom in a very violent way. Um, I mean, and and uh, very publicly, this uh, went uh, in the news and everything. And she uh, became very. Uh, uh, like public in her wanting her dad to be executed. Um, and I heard her tell her story and she, um, with tears in her eyes said the, the hatred was destroying me from the inside. You know, she said that, uh, and I've heard this, this from many victims, families that, um, that they forgave the person, not so that the, the, the person who did it could sleep, but so that they as a victim could sleep at night. And I, I think that's part of what um, I've seen folks recover from such horrific trauma by uh, forgiveness being a part of that. Um, we saw that even after after the Charleston shooting um, in, in South Carolina, uh, you know, and, and folks were crying out for forgiveness, but they were also calling Dylan Roof to repent. They said, you need Jesus. Um, you need to, you need to rethink your life. You know, you need, you need to, um, uh, uh, let Jesus save your soul. So I think that's, that's definitely true. Um, but forgiveness is good for us. And, and, you know, Jesus says, and as much as you forgive, you will be forgiven that we're, uh, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And that's what God is like. I mean, we see Jesus, even as he's dying saying, father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's what Jesus is like. It's what Jesus is teaching us to be like. Um, but I think it's also important, you know, you hear the mantra, forgive and forget. And um, I, I think we, we need to forgive and remember. Um, I, I think we, we need to rem- forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to what was done or to evil. But um, in fact, that we, we can still remember those scars. Jesus still had the scars when he rose from the dead. I think we, we um, have scars, these victims' families. And, and so they, but that is the power, I think, of forgiveness is that it, it has the power to transform um, both us and also um, the person who did this. And, and I think that's the scandal of God's grace is that um, we hold out hope, not only that God is healing victims, but also that God is healing victimizers. You know, the, both the offended and the offenders uh, are, are being transformed by that grace. Um, so, um, yeah, the, 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 that's why these stories are some of the most powerful ones I've ever uh, heard of in my life, you know, um, uh, folks that um, have seen like like one of the folks that I got to know is Terry Roberts, who was the mother of Charlie Roberts, who was responsible for the Amish school shooting, um, and he killed a bunch of the Amish kids and then killed himself. Um, but now a part of her recovery has been going every other week and taking care of one of the young girls that survived. And uh, she visits her and she says, every time I go and spend time with Rosanna, I am slapped in the face with the what my son did. But she says, but grace gets the last word and forgiveness is how people remember this story. And that's exactly what happened, you know, as, as that story unfolded, um, that, that there's this uh, relationship between the Amish community and the the family uh, that their son was responsible for the shooting and the Amish folks even created scholarships to help provide a future for 
their the the family of Charlie Roberts. I mean, that, that's just it's incredible, and I, I think those stories are out there. But they're often folks that are motivated by their faith to think differently about how we're actually going to heal um, from these very sinful and evil acts. You touched on a lot of really excellent points there. In fact, as you were speaking, I mean, I was reminded of the story of, I believe it was Nathaniel Saint, what, some 60-some-odd years ago in Jim Elliott's group, and they were evangelizing the Aka Indians and were killed. And then you fast forward a few decades, and one of the the, the, the men who had murdered uh, Nathaniel Saint had become a believer, and he and Saint's son went around preaching the gospel together. So, I mean, that's just a magnificent story of redemption. Well, the, I mean, there's so many stories like that. I, one of the stories that I tell often and I tell in my book is Billy Neil Moore, who came back and his, his guilt is not in question. He was responsible for taking someone's life and he was never had had any criminal history. He was so haunted by it. He voluntarily confessed, turned himself in. He tried to kill himself in prison. He said, if I could, I knew, he said, I knew I would face the death penalty. It was Georgia. And he said, I would have pushed the button on my own execution if I could. Like he didn't want, he, he had no reason to live. And then the, the victim's family uh, reached out to him because they were Christians. And they said, we want you to know that we hate what you did, but we love you. And we are praying for you. And we're also, because we're Christians, we believe in redemption. We believe in second chances. And um, we're going to uh, stand against the death penalty. And not only was he, he, he got, he became, you know, he got baptized while he was on death row. And, and like all kinds of things happened through this. But in the end, Billy Neil Moore not only was released from prison, uh, or not only was his life spared, but he was released from prison. And today he's a pastor. And when he preaches, the gospel just drips from his lips. You know, he talks about mercy triumphing over judgment and that Jesus came not for uh, the righteous, but for sinners. And that is the gospel. And and so, you know, any of us that claim to follow Jesus when it comes to capital punishment, um, you know, we've got the nagging problem of Jesus to deal with because Jesus came to save us. Uh, and while we were yet sinners, you know, extended that love to us. And so, uh, uh, and as we look at the whole of Scripture, you know, it's it's filled with messed up people. And that, that's one of the things, you know, in, in the book that I look at is Moses w killed a man in Exodus. Uh, David killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to cover up the atrocity of his sins. Um, Saul of Tarsus uh, oversaw the, the execution of Stephen and persecuted the early church. He looked more like ISIS than a saint, you know. And so if we believe that murderers are beyond redemption— uh, we, we've got a big problem with uh, Scripture because it would be a whole lot shorter without grace. And, and I think that's that's the, the story of grace is that, that um, even um, someone who can say, as Paul did, that, that I'm a chief of sinners um, uh, can be saved by the grace of God. You know, some years ago, I actually had the interesting experience of being able to dialogue in writing with David Berkowitz. And uh, I think many of our listeners will probably recognize the name. He's, he's better known as Son of Sam, uh, one of the most infamous serial killers in American history. But he got saved in prison uh, sometime in the, the, the late 80s, I believe. And he's been pastoring in, in the prison for 20, 30 years. Uh, and he is just so full of grace, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, it puts uh, myself— and many, uh, many people I'm, I'm around, uh, many other believers, kind of to shame just how, how full of grace he is. And I think that that really gets towards what you, what you brought up earlier in the interview, is that how we view this issue has a lot to do with how we view redemption and how we view the gospel. Because if, if, we're, if we're pointing fingers uh, rather than recognizing the depth of evil in our own hearts, then we kind of miss the gospel because really we all uh, justly stand under the, the, the anger of God for our sin, but God didn't just come and wipe us out. God, yeah. God absorbed um, that, that judgment and, and loved us and gave us his son. I mean, that's the heart of our faith. Um, so, I mean, as we're, you, 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 you touched a little bit there on, on the Old Testament, um, King David and, and, and Moses. You also talk in your book, you actually start at the very beginning with the very first murder with Cain. Can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that for our audience? Sure. Well, I mean, you, you think 
there, there are, without a doubt, there are scriptures that you can point to that say this justifies the death penalty. And I and and I did that, you know, and I and I go back and look at those in the book. But when you look at the very first murder, um, in fact, it's it's kind of the inaugural sin, you know, of life outside the Garden of Eden is uh, Cain and Abel, and um, Cain kills his brother. And yet, how does God respond to that? Um, God actually doesn't kill Cain. God protects Cain um, uh, and um, uh, stops the kind of spiral of retaliation. And I mean, he's ostracized. He's kind of quarantined or put in a, a type of solitary confinement, I, I guess you might say, for a while. But he, he's uh, allowed to live and he's actually eventually allowed to um, even have a family and build a city. Um, and so that uh, that's one of the first stories of murder that we have, one of the first stories that we have at all in, in the Bible. And then as you kind of look at Moses after that, and then, you know, one thing after another. Um, and, and, and of course, when you get to Jesus, I mean, that that's where you have Jesus is the, the embodiment of uh, God and, and, you know, God with skin on and, and love made flesh. And, and we see Jesus kind of constantly disarming uh, violence. And, and one of those is an execution of the woman that's caught in adultery. And I mean, it's, it's noteworthy that capital murder wasn't the only death worthy crime. You know, there were like 30 death worthy crimes in the Old Testament, including working on the Sabbath, you know, and uh, adultery was one of those. So she's, you know, getting ready to be killed. And the guys have their stones ready to kill her. And Jesus just comes into the scene and says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And that's exactly what Jesus says is, is, you know, if you've called someone a fool, you've committed murder in your heart. If you've looked at someone with lust in your eyes, you committed adultery. None of us are above reproach and none of us are beyond redemption. And the stones drop and the men walk away, you know, and, and Jesus and the woman are left there. And he does say, go and sin no more. But you also see Jesus there and he says, he, he says to her, where did all the men go? You know, where did they all go? And with Jesus and the woman, you have this beautiful ending to that story where um, you get the sense that the closer we are to God, the less we want to throw stones at people. And that's what God is like, is, is like Jesus. Jesus interrupts uh, uh, the violence and, and speaks grace. And, and uh, uh, so the... Um, the only one who had any right to throw a stone had absolutely no desire. And I think we have to we have to really model that. And that's what the early Christians did. They caught that message. They were adamantly against violence in every form. I mean, uh, there's a great book uh, Ron Sider wrote, uh, The Early uh, Church on Killing, where he shows how the early Christians in the first couple of two or three centuries of the church were um, had this consistent ethic of life and of speaking against violence. And that was violence in every form, um, uh, abortion, uh, execution, de the death penalty, um, uh, military service, all of those things. So uh, that was um, uh, a part of their message. And over and over, you see Tertullian, Hippolytus, you know, Oregon, uh, Athenagoras, uh, Gregory. Cyprian had a great line. He said, uh, why do we call it uh, evil when an individual takes someone's life and somehow it becomes noble or virtuous when the government does it in mass. That's a powerful statement, you know, that we, we say it's evil if a person kills someone, but somehow um, it we call it justice when the state kills um, through execution. And on the death certificate after an execution, it says homicide. It is a legal homicide. Uh, it, it, and and so that's why I think we we've got to say, as, as the Pope said so well, we want to stand against killing in every form, legal and illegal. Yeah, you know that that brings up some really just fantastic points. I mean, I'm, I I study early church history myself uh, pretty frequently. I, I think that's something that, as as kind of modern Christians, we we often neglect, um, but. You know, we have to consider that Christianity didn't just drop out of the sky yesterday. You know, we have an ancient faith, and we have to be in dialogue with those who have gone before us. Yeah. And, and I and there's really something to uh, getting at that the, the, those earliest believers, those who are closest chronologically to Christ and the apostles. And it, it it's tragic how few Christians today know 
anything about the early church. I mean, there's documentation that would suggest uh, that if if someone, if if a like a a state official, a judge of some kind who had who had the power of the sword, uh, became a believer, he was expected to resign, or he was rejected by the community and excommunicated because yes. they were so against uh, killing in any form. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about the trial of Christ also and how that just exposes the the hypocrisy of of empire when this this institution which which wages more violence than than any other institution or person on earth what what we call the state uh, puts to death God incarnate what, what does that say to this issue well good heavens yeah we might need a whole nother podcast for that but I mean I think it's exactly the right question is because on the one hand the, the one way of uh, understanding why Jesus died can, legitimize or glorify death. Um, and I mean, you've got some really toxic theology out there. Uh, I point out in my book that the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK has a whole section of their website on their theology of the cross and why they light the cross uh, to shine bright in the darkness. And there's all kinds of this toxic theology. You know, Hitler had the Bible in his hand as he you know, said he was going to annihilate the Jews just as Jesus drove them from the temple. And I mean, just there's, so there's all kinds of, as someone said, you, you bend the cross, you get a swastika, you know? So, um, but I think what we've got to do with that bad theology is counter it with good theology. And the way that I look at Jesus's execution um, is one that it's really important to call it an execution. It was a it, it was a very common way to kill people. There were times where they said there were so many crosses lined up on the horizon that you couldn't even enjoy the sunset. Um, that that this was a terrible, horrible, humiliating way to die. You know, exposed naked with birds. You know, kind of coming and eating the carcasses. I mean, it was it was uh, evil. And so what Jesus does um, as he dies in that way um, is he puts it all on display. You know, he puts death uh, on uh, on display not to glorify it, but to uh, subvert it, right? And he steals the show with his love and with an empty tomb. And that subversion of death is so important to understand, you know, that at, at what he endured with forgiveness and grace on his lips was he, uh, Colossians said he made a spectacle of the principalities and powers. He put them, you know, out there so we could all see it and see the evil that we and our state um, are capable of. Um, it's, it's, I think sin is an individual thing. It's also affects our principalities and powers, you know? Um, so what Jesus does, I think there's a whole lot of things that happen through that as he makes a spectacle of it. He also heals us from the wounds of, uh, violence as he's dying with nonviolence, triumphing over that violence with love, triumphing over hatred and life triumphing over death. I mean, that's the whole story of what Jesus did on the cross. There's a, uh, certainly a mystery to it, you know, um, but the idea of atonement, um, or some say at one minute, you know, as he's putting things back together again, um, and everything that was lost in Adam is restored uh, through Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. So the effects of sin and violence, he's healing the world of that. So now to walk away from that and then to declare that someone else should be executed, <laughs> is, is, it boggles the mind. I think it's an absolute disgrace to the work, uh, the redemptive work that Jesus was doing. And anytime we rejoice in death, we disgrace the cross. Um, so it's that which, like, it was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Um, I, I, I say in the book, it was uh, uh, like water poured on the electric chair. You know, it was meant to short circuit the whole system of death. Um, and and invalidate that system so that now, like, there's no need for more blood. There's no need for more death. We, through Christ, we have uh, redemption. And uh, hallelujah, sounds like we're ready for an altar call. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I get excited about that because I think it uh, it is really at the very heart of our faith. Um, uh, and But there's, there's, you know, as you unpack it, there's so many other things. Like, as people are killing Jesus, who killed Jesus? That's that's a, a great question, and the answer is all of us. You know, um, 
no one really wants the full responsibility. Yeah. You know, pilots washing his hands, people are passing him around from priests to, you know, uh, government leaders. And, you know, Judas has a role to play and everybody, you know, like the, the people, the masses demand Barabbas, you know, they, um, uh, so there's, there's all of these different things that are happening. And in the end, I think Jesus's, uh, execution also teaches us that we have a system that kills, but no one really wants to be a killer. There's something in us that just is resistant to killing. It does something to us. It, when we kill, it kills something in us. And that's why I think even in our contemporary system um, of execution, you have uh, a jury, you've got judges, you've got parole boards, governors, and no one really wants to share the whole responsibility of taking someone's life. Um, and yet that's exactly what we're doing. It's why even in tr uh, even now with firing squad executions, the last of which in the U.S. was 2010. So, I mean, that's not that long ago. But still firing squad executions have a blank bullet. They call it the bullet of conscience so that everybody can walk away thinking maybe it wasn't me that killed this person. And I think that's that should tell us something, you know, that we we are not made to kill uh, it's why nurses and doctors in North Carolina have refused to be a part of executions and they've stopped them because they said it's a violation of our oath to do no harm. We didn't become nurses and doctors to kill people, but to save people. And the medical as association has backed them. So I think we need to be resisting on all fronts and, and especially those of us who worship uh, the executed and risen Christ. Like every time we take communion, every time we worship Jesus, we're remembering what he did and it should change us. I think it should make us sensitive to the victims of violence, both those who are victims of violent crime and also those who are uh, victims of state-sanctioned execution. Shane, what would you say to the arguments that Romans 13 or Paul in the book of Acts at his trial saying, you know, if I if I deserve to die, I object not to die. How would you answer those uh, objections to to critics? So I, I think Romans 13 is a really important one. And so I, I spent some time on that one. And I, I uh, here's I mean, in a nutshell, I mean, this is a little Cliff Notes version, but I, I think that it's important first to begin by realizing that the same Paul that wrote Romans 13, where he's saying we need to submit to the authorities, um, they're the hand of God. Um, he's also this is the same Paul that in Ephesians says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and authorities. He uses the same word that we're wrestling against these. So there's a wrestling in Paul that he says, respect the authorities, but then Paul goes to jail <laughs> for some, and one of the things he's charged of is subverting the authorities, you know? And so uh, that there, there's, there's a tension there. Um, and I do believe that we need to, the, the question that, that is raised, I think, is like, what is God's and what is Caesar's and what what, what uh, power uh, should the state have? And that's where, you know, you libertarians, man, you guys should, you know, be the, the biggest, uh, ha have some healthy suspicions about state power. But even now, you know, we've got like governments in Uganda that want to make homosexuality a uh, capital crime. They want to kill folks with same gendered relationships. And many of them are Christians and they're saying it's in the Bible. And I, so I think we can all say like there are places where we should be very suspicious of giving the state too much power. Um, and, 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 uh, and especially those of us who love Jesus, you know, we, we want to uh, stand against death and even when our state does it. And that's what the early Christians were doing. So they didn't interpret this Jesus and the, the gospel narrative to support state uh, murder. And um, I think that's really important. I don't think Paul did either. I mean, he was almost killed by the state and, and so were the early Christians. So that helped fire their abolition to fire. But I think also just on principle, they saw killing uh, as part of the problem. And that's why they spoke against uh, uh, military services well. You know, the question wasn't whether or not uh, people could kill. That They were very clear that you can't kill in the military. Some, A couple of the early Christians said you could serve in the military as long as it wasn't in a, uh, a, 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 a like a, a killing uh 
capacity. You could build bridges. You could, you know, do other aqueducts and things like that. But anyway, I think I think all that is there's a way that we use certain scriptures like Romans 13 to trump Jesus, and I think that's very dangerous because Jesus has to be the lens through which we're reading scripture and through which we're understanding how to live in the world. And um, I still believe that the whole scripture is the word of God. And I want to wrestle with things like Romans 13. But when these scriptures seem to conflict or combat with each other, Jesus becomes the referee. And Jesus becomes the, the kind of glasses that I'm looking at all of it under. And, and, and uh, I think, you know, in any any uh, uh, f- person that's modeling their life after Jesus, it becomes harder and harder to justify the death penalty. And that's why, you know, I, I give a little friendly critique to Al Mohler and some of the folks who have written scriptural support for the death penalty in, in his, in his uh, entire treatise on the, the biblical death penalty. Like he doesn't mention Jesus or the gospels a single time. And I think that's uh uh, a glaring hole in the theology that backs the death penalty. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's you know more to be said on that, but I, I think we can all think of states that have been out of line with how they've killed people. Um, so to say that you know this is just uh, a, a blank check for uh, the government to practice the death penalty or militarism, uh, Romans 13 gives them that authority. I think is a misreading of that that scripture and a very dangerous one because some of the most horrific things in history have happened because Christians have trumped everything with Romans 13 um, and justified apartheid and um, uh, Hitler and, and, and really atrocious things. We mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that many libertarians are torn on this issue. And I think for those who come down on the side of, you know, anti-capital punishment, it's very much because we don't want to give too much power to the state or any power to the state because it's this is life or death, in this case, literally. And we really are suspicious and we are very skeptical of state power. And when you give the state that much power to literally kill you, that is a very dangerous thing. I think that's probably why many maybe Christian libertarians are against the, are, are against the death penalty is because of being a libertarian as a Christian, I think there's still that like gray area for a lot of people, and you've just addressed all of the kind of concerns about Scripture, and, and I encourage our listeners to read your book to get even more of a, you know, you gave the Cliff Notes version, and go read the book, and you can get it on audiobook for those, those who like to do audiobooks. Shane, to wrap up, what would be your plea to Christians for those who are unconvinced and maybe they're listening because they're interested in the topic, but they're not really eager to change positions. But what would you, what would your plea be to Christians who I, I would, I would argue need to really think about this? Well, the first thing I would say is that we need to lean into Jesus. We need to cling to Jesus and allow Jesus to transform who we are and, 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 you know, ask questions about, what 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 is it in you know, Jesus saying? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, and as much as you forgive, you will be forgiven. Like that. This is what God's like. How do we become more like that? Because in the end, I'm not interested with just you know everybody believing everything I do. I'm interested in all of us becoming more like Jesus um, and being transformed by Christ. Um, but I think we also need to lean in to um, the people who have been directly affected by this and groups like Journey of Hope. Um, where this is a group that has murder victims, families, and families of the executed together. And I've been with them, and it's so powerful to see them hold a sign that says, remember the victims, but not with more killing, not by creating more victims. And um, so I, I think that we, we um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really optimistic, you know, I mean, uh, uh, a poll was done, I think it was Pew, that asked uh, Americans, would Jesus be for the death penalty. And 95% of them said, no, Jesus would not be in favor of the death penalty. Um, so it's, it's just the Christians. We got to convince to take Jesus more seriously. <laughs> you know. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we're moving away from the death penalty. A new, a new uh, state abolishes it almost every year. Executions are the lowest they've been in over 20 years. Death sentences are the lowest that they've been in uh, almost half a century. Um, so millennials, like 80% of millennial Christians are against the death penalty. So 
like I, I really believe that we can be a part of uh, making history uh, on this, and um, and I would love to see Christians in the forefront of that, um, and, and we can be in dialogue with other folks too. I mean, what, what's really interesting is the Jewish community. I've got a very conservative rabbi friend that says we don't agree on everything, but on this death penalty thing, it's spot on. And Jews have known that for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he says even though we have it in our Hebrews, you know, in the Hebrew Bible. We never really did it. In fact, the rabbi said, if a court executes more than one person every 70 years, every seven decades, it's a bloody court. We need to rethink uh, society. And, um, and, and, and so, like, he says, the irony is that Jewish folks abolished the death penalty before Christians did. And you've got Jesus. <laughs> you know, and he says, but Christians are going to the Old Testament and using, even abusing Hebrew scripture to justify the death penalty and to undermine, you know, the, the message of Jesus. And he just found that baffling as a Jewish rabbi. So I, I think we've got to go back and look at scripture. And we've got to look into the eyes of Jesus and listen to those who have been traumatized both by violence and by uh, executions and by a system uh, like uh, there's groups like Witness to Innocence that is led by exonerees, folks like my friend Derek Jameson, who was wrongfully convicted, spent 20 years on death row um, before they forced the prosecution to release 30 pieces of evidence that proved his innocence. And he was released without an apology and with no compensation. I mean, that's just one story of a life that was devastated. His entire adult life was taken from him. uh, And and he was traumatized seeing 50 of his friends die as they were executed by the state of Ohio. So, I mean, we've got to, I think we, we, we can do better. We can live without the death penalty, and I would love to see Christians standing on the side of life, because this is a pro-life issue, too. Uh, um, abortion is important, and, and I, I feel passionately about that, too, uh, but it's not the only uh, pro-life issue. We're, we're not just pro-birth, uh, and we're not just anti-abortion, but to be pro-life, I think, means um, to stand against violence in every form. And uh, on, on the issue of the death penalty, Christians have actually been the problem. Um, it wouldn't stand a chance if it weren't for Christians. Eighty-five percent of executions in the last 40 years have happened in the Bible Belt. As my friend says, the Bible Belt is the death belt in America. Wherever Christians have been most concentrated is where the death penalty has survived. So it's time to change uh, that and, and to see uh, the death penalty uh, become history and, and Christians uh, standing against it. So thanks for having me on your show. Shane, thank you very much. That was fascinating. That's, uh, that's it for this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can write to podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also support us at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you very much for being with us, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.